Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. June is Pride Month. As a tribute to the legacy of the 1969 Stonewall Uprising in New York City, protesters demanded the establishment of places where LGBTQ people could go and be open about their sexual orientation without fear of arrest or harassment. While the history of gay rights usually begins with Stonewall in 1969, the movement's origins go back to 1957, when a brilliant astronomer was fired from his high-level job by the U.S. government. Dr. Eric Cervini has written about that scientist's life and activism in his book, The Deviant's War. The author will tell us the story of Frank Kameny later this hour. First... Beginning in the 1980s, comedian Julia Scotty performed as Rick Scotty and appeared on bills with the likes of Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock. Now, the trans comedian has returned to the stage as an older woman in comedy. Susan Sandler's new film, Julia Scotty, Funny That Way, tracks the comedian's true tender, and very funny comeback story. Julia Scotty and Susan Sandler are with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Lovely to be here. Great to be here, Lois. Thank you for having us. This film was shot over a period of five years with the goal of telling Julia's life story. Susan, why did you think that Julia's story was worthy of that commitment? Well, the journey of an indie doc is passion. You know, there's not a commissioned piece. This is not a production company standing around waiting for the film to be delivered. This was me by myself meeting Julia and feeling absolutely compelled to tell her story. And the compulsion was I was fascinated by her uh, as a performer, as an individual, as someone who had a very important story to tell. And the commitment on her end, which I am so grateful for, 
was that access. Um, we didn't know what the journey was going to be, of course, because that's what documentary storytelling is. It's a, a wonderful attraction to a subject that is absolutely compelling, but without a story map. The story map is what life gives us, which unfolds with great surprises, as Julia gave us. So the, the journey was not meant to be five years. It's just what it happened to be as the storytelling unfolded. And I'm very, very grateful that Julia went on the ride with me. Hmm. Funny That Way is a roller coaster. It's hilarious. And there are also moments that are very painful, very raw, especially those that explain Julia's previous distance with her children. Julia, was it difficult for you to be that vulnerable on camera? Yes and no. I mean, I, it was such a joyous part of my life having them come back into my life that I was I was grateful in a way to have it on record, you know, to be able to watch it and see it and share it with people, too, whose stories may be similar to mine, who have lost somebody that they love in their life or more than somebody and and then to have them come back. So I wanted people to, to share the joy of having them come back, you know, and, and on the other hand, it was a private moment too, but uh, I think the lesson taken from it was more important that there is hope. Oh, yeah. In fact, one of the comments you made in the film that really bowled me over was self-loathing murderer of my former self. That just landed like a gut punch. Was it a shrink who said that to you? Uh, no, <laughs> it was, uh, it came from, it was in my journal. I, I kept pretty meticulous journals uh, from about 1975, I guess, on. And uh, I guess Susan she combed through them page by page, right, Susan, wasn't that? Oh, yeah. Julia Julia gave me boxes and boxes of every piece of writing and photographs and videos and so generously just opened it all up for me. And out of that, I, I pulled pieces that I thought would be valuable to the storytelling. I love the use of animation throughout the film. Susan, would you talk about why you chose to include those segments. Thank you. Um, first, I want to give a shout out to our animator, uh, the very gifted Sam Roth. And the process of working on the animation was to understand, you know, Julia's world is the world of comedy, um, the tone of the film, um, the storytelling, lifting it into that space as, with as many occasions as possible. First, we created, uh, working with Sam, we created the essence of Julia as the cartoon figure that we meet at the top of the film in the prologue. And then looked for, I looked for sections of the storytelling that felt that they could be illuminated through animation in a way that would be both entertaining and tonally connected to the storytelling of the film. So it, it was a really exciting process to figure out which sections wanted to be animated, and then to work with a very gifted animator, Sam Roth, to realize that, and then to show it to Julia, to let her meet her animated self. So all of the, all those pieces. Julia, what were your reactions when you saw those animated figures? Um, it was a surprise. I knew, 
I had known that that Susan had had gotten Sam to work on the book to see well what are they going to do with the way I look and it was a pretty accurate uh, representation I thought it was wonderful and it was it was tender I thought it wasn't caricature like in a negative way it, no no not at all not at all and when you put them in Susan it it just felt so organic. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the goal um, in, in all of the pieces of the storytelling, you know, I spent the five years of working on this film, both combing through all of the archival material, which Julia shared with me, and much of which I had restored because, you know, a lot of VHS tapes don't store well and the material becomes disintegrated. So a lot of capturing of that material and converting it and then combing through it to find where the jewels were that we were going to use and then figuring out, of course, the story structure. And that's the whole, you know, journey in the storytelling piece, the writing of a documentary. Life is, you know, life is life and, and we're telling the truth. But, you know, people's lives are, are complex and Julia is a complex character with a fascinating life. So figuring out what the spine of the story is and then, you know, which paintbrush to pick up at what point in the storytelling, um, an archival image or uh, interview images, or in this case, figuring out where the animation would illuminate part of the story. So, you know, that that process, uh, and of course, animation, the animation that Sam did is not something that happens overnight. Each of those sequences um, took a long time. They're all hand-drawn. So it's... It was really exciting to figure that those pieces out and then to work collaboratively with him on that. And I'm, I'm very glad that you feel that it, it's, it blends seamlessly. That's the goal. Absolutely. Julia, it was beautiful to witness your reconnection with your kids and delightful to find out that both your kids are comedy fans. Your son, Dan, is even a comedy writer and has done some stand-up himself. How did it make you feel to discover that your kids had this love of comedy despite the years you were distanced from them? I was more surprised by my daughter's interest in it than my son. My son was always a ham, and I kind of, when I found out that he was doing it, I was like, yeah, no big surprise there. <laughs> just a, you know, he's just a... a, a loves comedy and he you know he's loved it since he was a little one but my daughter i she always struck me as being serious you know and and uh with all you know i, I completely lost touch with them all those years so i had no idea that she was this she had this growing interest so it was for her a surprise for my son no not at all the fact that you were married a few times is essential to your story and in hindsight, you say that you think most people should wait till they are older to get married. Why is that true? I do think people should be sure about my marriages. You know, it's not like the 1800s where we lived to be 30 and then die. You know, you can get married at, you know, 20 and then be the widow by 30. You know, so, you know, you're going to be with somebody 40, 50, 60 years. You better be damn sure that you're, you know, you like this person. Especially, you know, for me and for a lot of trans people, multiple marriages are pretty common. You know, that we're all trying to find that normal in our lives. And so what's more normal than a white picket fence and, uh, and you know, 2.3 kids? I just think 
I have my own personal feelings about marriage in general, but yeah, I think you should wait. Kate is particularly important to your story. Would you talk a little bit about her? Kate is the most remarkable human being I've ever known in my life. She's the love of my life. I still love her and uh, probably will to the day I die. She also is the person who selflessly and lovingly helped me discover that I was trans when I didn't know what the issue was. And she was your wife. We're married, yes. But um, we the marriage was um, annulled. So yeah, I call it my, I was married two and a half times. <laughs> She's my half time. There is a very rough moment in the film when Julie is watching one of her decades-old performances and appalled to realize that she's done a bit that made fun of trans people. Susan, why did you want to include that in the documentary? There was a, an opportunity to comb through the archival material and let Julia see what we found. It was an archival dig. And I knew that that was going to be revelatory and dramatic and a kind of important marker. Um, it was very interesting that that opportunity was um, in sync with Dan's visit so that Julia was, was able to discover that material with him and talk about it with him. Um, and I think that marker is very significant in terms of the then and now of her story. Hmm. Julia, in your time off from comedy, you became a teacher. What attracted you to teaching? Um, I, well, first of all, I love, I love kids. So, and and uh, teaching and comedy are very similar. Uh, How know, so? Well, you have, a, you have a captive audience, you know, the, and the kids, and you have a captive audience in, in a nightclub. The only difference is, hopefully, that the kids aren't drunk and the audience is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but they, um, it was a natural, for, you know, for me, because teaching answers a lot of my needs, and because and, I get bored on a job really easy, but the kids will keep you, no two days are the same in a classroom. Uh, there's always some, you know, multiple crises, crises to deal with. And, uh, you know, I get to use all of my creative juices that keeps them flowing, too. So uh, it was a natural progression. And a lot of comedians I know either came from teaching uh, into comedy or went from when they left comedy, went into teaching. So Really? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. We make great teachers, comedians. I'm just going to pop up and say um, right now. Julia is offering uh, an incredible class um, to professional actors in New York in comedy. She shares the syllabus with me every week, and I just it blows my mind to see it. So I, I love, Julia, that you're back teaching in this very selective way, because it's um, such a cool thing that you're doing. And you're going to love this week, and I, I don't I mean to deviate, but we're, we're, we're talking about Jean Carroll. Ooh. Oh. Comedian from the, you may not, you may know her, you may not know her, but. Uh, you look at her and you go, okay, Mrs. Maisel. She's the original Mrs. Maisel. Yes. Well, when you went back to teaching, what age group were your students? Sixth grade teacher, yeah. And do any of those students keep in touch they or do. watch your comedy? Yeah, I have, uh, I have a couple of them that, I, that stay in touch with me. I, 
Uh, a few of them have come to the shows, and I, of course, I didn't recognize them because they're all grown up now, and and, and it makes me cry because I'm so old. But it's, it makes me laugh, you know, to see how wonderfully they they you know, turned out. If you've just tuned in, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzis, talking with transgender comedian Julia Scotty and director Susan Sandler about the new documentary, Julia Scotty, Funny That Way. Let's talk about your time on America's Got Talent. Julia, what was it like for you to perform to an audience of that size and scale? Um, I had really thought this through before I actually walked out on the stage, and I, and I, had, I had worked theaters before, where there were several thousand people. So I, I was used to that. It didn't bother me. Uh, it was a little different having the four judges in front of me. That was kind of intimidating. But my plan was to just look beyond them and not really pay attention to whether they were laughing or not. Although, peripherally, I could see Simon out of the corner of my eye. And when he did laugh, I went, okay, I got this. <laughs> Talk about a testament. Well, yeah, huh? well, you don't think about the 13 million other people that are watching at home because it's not a, it's irrelevant. They don't exist, you know, when you're on when you're in that moment. True. On the other hand, you have someone in the moment who could be rather intimidating, to put it mildly. Yeah, yeah, but I knew that Howie, you know, I knew that I, I had enough confidence in my ability as a comic to know that how how he would get what I was doing, and I knew that it, uh, uh, if if nobody else on that panel liked me, Howie would you know jump to my defense, which he did. But Simon, uh, when I saw him laugh, I, you could see it was genuine. You know, I just put my uh, foot to the gas and just didn't look back because I knew it was a, it was a done deal. It was going it was going to be it was going to be okay. Julia's health becomes an issue toward the end of the time filming, and there's a hospital room recovery scene in the film. Yeah, talk about not funny and vulnerability. Susan, would you tell us what determined your choice to include that part of Julia's story? Well, first, you know, it's it was so incredibly courageous of Julia to allow the camera into her life at that moment. And I'm very grateful for that. And I think what we see in the arc of the storytelling is someone with, I mean, Julia was, I think, two weeks away at that point from taping uh, a Showtime comedy special. This was, you know, the timing on that event was unbelievably shocking for her. And what we see in in her story and in her life and in her example is extraordinary resilience. And that's, that's why that sequence is important. And that's why the movement of the story around her recovery and the choices that she's making to live such a healthy life. And this is a person, this is a woman with great strength and great will and um, a bionic determination, right? So, you know, she, she keeps on keeping on and keeps us very connected to what matters in life. Of course, you mine your life-threatening illness for comedy material, Julia, when you talk about your quadruple bypass and say 
your arteries were clogged with pastry and cheeseburgers. <laughs> yes, that so. could have been a great animation, Susan. You could have had a wonderful little cartoon. <laughs> Truly an event. I'm so glad you've recovered. Your health has recovered. And now that you are well again, Julia, what's next? Wow. Uh, well, I'm working now on... on uh, putting together material for a new album that I'm recording November the 6th of this year, if all goes well. Uh, so there's that. I wrote a play. Yeah, wrote yeah a play. beautiful play. Uh-huh. We're hoping to get that uh, maybe produced. Wow. Will you act in it? No, 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 no. I don't uh, know. I'm, cl- I'm too close to it, first of all, and uh, I'm too old for it, <laughs> for the parts anyway. Do you have anyone in mind who... You'd love to see perform you. Uh, the character's actually not me. Oh, they're they're based on people I know. They're composite characters. So, oh, now you do have me intrigued. I thought it was exquisite when you said, "If it's your truth, it's gonna be hard to talk about." Julia Scotty, thank you for talking about your truth so beautifully and so hilariously. I live by the words of Charlie Chaplin who said, to truly laugh, you must be able to take your pain and play with it. And that's what I've tried to do. Susan Sandler's new documentary, Julia Scotty, Funny That Way, is streaming now on iTunes, Amazon Prime, Google Play, and more. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The history of the gay rights movement usually begins with the Stonewall Uprising in 1969. In fact, the movement's origins go back to 1957, when a brilliant astronomer was fired from his high-level job by the U.S. government. The importance of Franklin Kameny and the history of gay civil rights cannot be overstated, yet his name isn't widely known. Eric Cervini has set out to change that with his book, The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. He's with us now via Zoom. Dr. Cervini, welcome to WABE City Lights. Thanks so much for having me. When I read that this book was the basis of your doctoral dissertation, I wasn't surprised as your research is so extensive. What 
drew you to write about Kameny? Well, you know, it, it, it was a seven-year-long process. <laughs> it was a, quite a while in the making. And so I first stumbled across his name way back when, in around 2013, and happened to watch the film Milk, about Harvey Milk. And I had just come out of the closet about a year or two before. And after watching that film, I was just shocked that I hadn't heard that story before, you know, as a 21-year-old. And it got me to wondering what other stories are out there from our past, from American history, that also have not been taught in public schools, in university curricula. And as I was searching for Milk's name and other gay activists who, you know, maybe needed a book written about them or needed their own film, the first name, of course, to pop up was Frank Kameny, who historians have long regarded as the grandfather of the gay rights movement, but uh, until now has never had his own book. I have to tell you, I imagined this as a biopic, and that's saying a lot for a doctoral dissertation. I don't, <laughs> I don't think many of them reach that stage. Have you been approached? We, yes, and uh, fingers crossed we'll have some news coming out in the next few weeks or months. So we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm actually based in Hollywood, but I, I never, uh, never get too excited. So we'll see. I'm, I'm just encouraging people to read the book for now. <laughs> okay, well, please let us know if a film or miniseries comes sure. about. So you first discovered Kameny in this treasure trove of research, letters, archives. At the age of four, he wanted to be a scientist. And by age six, Franklin Kameny decided to become an astronomer. I would say that's a rather precocious child. Yes. Would, would you talk about his youth and the path he took to realize his professional dream? Well, I'm glad you start there because so many people dive into his activism. And I always have to remind them, he, as you've said, began his life growing up in Queens in New York City in the 1930s. He wanted to be an astronomer. That was it. He wanted to study the stars. And eventually he was successful. He went to Harvard and graduated in 1956 uh, with a PhD in astronomy. And anyone who studied American foreign relations knows that the next year was very significant in that it was the launch of Sputnik. So you could not have picked a better time to be an astronomer in the world, not let alone one from uh, with a Harvard education. And so he was really positioned to be one of the framers of the American Manned Space Program. He very likely would have worked alongside Werner von Braun and others in the creation of NASA two years later. But as he began his government job, uh, he was working for the Defense Department uh, beginning in 1957. Within months, they found out he was gay. And because of that, and solely because of that, he was purged from his job and banned from working for the federal government for the rest of his life. So here is quite possibly the best qualified scientist in America to work for NASA. And we should add, unlike Werner von Braun, was not a proud Nazi, but exactly. an American who had served his country in World War II nobly. 
How did Frank Kameny respond to the injustice he faced? Well, one thing that was very unique about Frank was his attachment to logic. It was just something that he identified very early on as his life is very important of this idea of rationality, the scientific process. And of course, discrimination of any kind is inherently illogical. And that was really how he first began fighting back. And that was what set him apart because most people in his position, if you were fired for being gay or the government discovered a sexual indiscretion, then you would quietly move on with your life. You would try to get another job, a different profession, maybe a different city. And Frank Hamney said, absolutely not. I've trained 15, 20 years to be an astronomer, an astronomer I will be. And so he begins fighting back, of course, at the administrative level until that no longer uh, works. It gets denied at every stage of his appeal. And then he becomes the first to take his case and that of any gay federal employee to the Supreme Court. He becomes the first openly gay man to petition the court uh, in 1961. And so, of course, everyone has heard about the, the Supreme Court decision just this past June. And that was really the culmination of a 60-year battle for employment rights that was initiated by Frank Kameny. Mm. And you bring out how extraordinary Kameny was in his appeal, a 12-page written appeal in which he never denied his homosexuality. Would you elaborate on his defense on that emphasis on morality and and philosophy, which speaks volumes to his integrity, but must have baffled those he was appealing to. Yes, yes. And of course, you know, this is in the 1950s and the ACLU and other civil libertarians were used to fighting the government on Uh, due process grounds. And that was really how he began his appeal, saying that he wasn't afforded any sort of evidence, anything like that. It was not a fair uh, dismissal. But then once he reached the Supreme Court and his attorney who was uh, affiliated with the ACLU actually abandoned him and said that you just don't have a shot. And so he wrote the cert petition on his own. And this document, as you said, was revolutionary in that It was a manifesto for gay rights and and gay power a full decade before Stonewall. And one of the ways that he battled the rationale of the purges, the gay purges, because the government claimed that if you were gay, then you were inherently immoral and you were inherently secretive about your condition and therefore susceptible to blackmail. Uh, If Soviet agents found out you were gay, they could get uh, classified information from you. And so he said, well, I'm going to make an equally arbitrary argument in response to prove that the government's rationale was also illogical, was also unconstitutional and arbitrary. And so he argued that homosexual activity was actually a moral good. And he made this claim openly. He submitted his case as Kameny versus Brucker, the secretary of the army, instead of anonymous versus the secretary of the army, which was absolutely his prerogative. So in my dissertation and in this book, 
I argue that was really the beginnings of what gay pride is, what we celebrate each and every June of declaring uh, the moral goodness of one's condition and also doing so openly, whether it's on the streets or in the case of Frank Kameny in the Supreme Court. So the gay movement really began in 1953 rather than in 1969 with Stonewall. Absolutely. And of course, Stonewall is in the book and it's an incredibly important moment in uh, queer history and in American history. But I think you also have to rewind a bit and see what was the context and who were the figures responsible for creating some of these ideological uh, foundations for gay power and queer liberation. Because this Supreme Court document really was the beginnings of what we now know as pride. And he eventually translated it into something a bit more uh, pithy and compact. He simply said, gay is good. And I think you also have to look at the 1960s and Frank Kameny because it allows us to understand how important the Black Freedom Movement was also in the development of pride. Because what was Frank Kameny relying upon and basing his strategy upon Well, it was the Black Freedom Movement. He was looking at Greensboro, uh, the sit-ins in 1960, and saying, I want to also reclaim morality and prove that the oppressor, the federal government, is the immoral one. He heard Stokely Carmichael saying, Black is beautiful, and he translated that into gay is good. And so we have to show that process of Frank Kameny really (laughs) acting as a Xerox machine, as I like to call it, of borrowing from the Black Freedom Movement and creating what we now know as gay pride. In the earlier days of his activism, Kameny wanted demonstrators to wear suits and ties to appear respectable as they picketed. This was something also important to civil rights leaders at the time, that you appear impeccably well-dressed and dignified. How did Frank Kameny evolve as an activist? It's a great question because that's really the story that the book tells is that so many histories and, and you know, popular depictions of, of, of people in history paint them as static, that they don't change over time. And of course, people do change and especially their political tactics and their own personalities even. And as you mentioned, Frank Kameny was obsessed with this idea of, of order and projecting this respectable image, which, of course, was borrowed from the Black Freedom Movement. Students who were, who were uh, demonstrating on the streets in the South were told to dress as if they were going to church uh, so, because activists knew that they would be photographed. And this was the depiction that the American public would see of their minority. And Frank Kameny borrowed that same tactic, as you said, requiring men to wear suits and ties and women to wear uh, dresses and high heels uh, when marching outside of the White House on the 4th of July or the Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And of course, you know, one thing you have to recognize when you talk about this strategy is how is it also exclusionary, right? What about people who didn't have a suit or people who didn't have federal jobs to begin with, or maybe who didn't fit within the gender binary, who didn't identify as either male or female. So what I argue in the book is one of the reasons why Frank Kameny was forgotten and why the pre-Stonewall gay rights movement or homophile movement, as it was called, was forgotten, 
was because it was inherently exclusionary, because they kept themselves so small by having this uh, attachment to respectability, which may have been necessary for them to make that step, but certainly as the 60s progressed, ultimately held them back. And that's why you start to see tensions within the homophile movement as a new generation of activists say, this isn't enough. This isn't representative of the entirety of the queer population in America. And that's why Stonewall was so important because you start to see the very least respectable, the most marginalized in a community putting their bodies on the line and galvanizing an entire movement. We'll be back with Dr. Eric Servini discussing his new book, The Deviant's War, after a short break. You're listening to 90.1 WABE at Latta's Choice for NPR. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with Eric Cervini. His new book is titled The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. Here, the author discusses one of the earliest LGBT organizations in the United States, the Mattachine Society. So I'm in Los Angeles, and that is where the original Mattachine Society was founded by a group of, of communists and fellow travelers in 1950 uh, here in, in the Silver Lake neighborhood of Los Angeles. And the Mattachine name was actually a reference to uh, medieval jesters in the 15th century in France who criticized the throne and were able to get away with it because they were wearing masks and they did so under the guise of, of satire. Uh, and so one of the founders was a music teacher who studied them and uh, used this name as a cheeky euphemism for how the gay minority really was concealing their true identities behind the mask of being straight. And so that was the first Mattachine Society. And Frank Kameny, of course, knew about this organization. There were different chapters, but he just took the name. He, he didn't really have any regard for uh, asking permission to use it. And that was one of the most foundational organizations in America, certainly the first national gay rights organization. And Frank Kameny recognized, you know, this is a, a historically important name, and so I'm going to borrow it. And I think it's a name that we should all recognize and, and also criticize. Well, on that topic of history, I was absolutely fascinated to read about the history of Mattachine and that it dated to 1435 in France. And you're right that originally the name was Société Joyeuse, which I would think with my schoolgirl French, the Society of Joyous Ones, Joyous could be translated as gay in that <laughs> right. You know, I never made that connection, but that's exactly right. And uh, Harry Hay, the founder of the Mattachine, hypothesized that those organizations, groups in, in, in France and then also Italy, were filled with performers and also drag queens in the 15th century who were, you know, uh, venerated. And he hypothesized that they were perhaps 
okay, even though that word didn't exist at the time. But I think that connection uh, uh, or similarity in uh, <laughs> uh, etymology shouldn't be ignored. That's that's fascinating. But I love that it's a positive notion. And, you know, for all of our inclination to want to dismiss stereotypes, when it's something good, in this case, Renaissance-era music theater people, you got to love it. Yep, yep. (laughs) Especially the descriptions of some of the, you know, on, on Mardi Gras, of the processions and the parades of the Medicine organizations and uh, some of these societies with uh, Mother Fool, as she was called, who was essentially a drag queen on a chariot surrounded by hundreds of men who were part of this Medicine organization. This is the 15th century, right? And where uh, uh, gender norms and, and society were a bit more fluid because you didn't have the concept of being a heterosexual yet. It was just a matter of your, your behavior uh, and the identity was really quite fluid back then. Which is very important, and back to the serious now, very important for us to be reminded of that, that ours is a much more recent received prejudice. I was invited to an event several years ago for the Lambda Legal Defense Society. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, here in Atlanta, they do such great legal work pro bono. I didn't know about ancient Greece and how perfectly normal it was to be fluid sexually. So there is just so much rich detail in your book. In 1968, there was a meeting of the North American Conference of Homophile Organization, which looks like Nacho, but you know, is pronounced NACO. Would you tell us about their resolution and the slogan they adopted? Yes. Well, 68 was a, a very important year for many reasons, but that particular conference was the one at which Frank Hamney introduced his proposal that the official slogan of the homophile movement was simply gay is good. And as I mentioned, he, he, he borrowed that from the Black Freedom Movement and the concept of Black is beautiful. And both of those phrases were seen as a psychological antidote to the sense of inferiority that so many people, whether you identified as black or gay, felt because society told you that that is how you should feel. And Frank Hamney, just like Stokely Carmichael, recognized that that was the root cause of so many of the problems plaguing their movements because Frank Hamity believes part of the reason why his demonstrations were so small, why it was so difficult to recruit people to sue the federal government, why it was so hard to convince gay Americans that, in fact, they were not sick. They did not suffer a mental disorder, as psychiatrists would have had you believe. He knew that he had to combat that sense of inferiority first. And so that is why in 1968, uh, the homophile organizations that attended that NACO conference adopted 
that phrase. And this was an entire year before Stonewall that they were declaring gay is good. And although it was isolated within the homophile movement, it did not extend far beyond it. It was not until Stonewall that that phrase was then adopted by the new generation of gay liberationists who brought it onto the front pages of the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine. It wasn't until the riots that the phrase exploded in scale. Perhaps Frank Kameny's greatest achievement was getting the American Psychiatric Association to acknowledge that homosexuality was not an illness. How did he accomplish that? Well, it was one of his chief accomplishments, and you can't talk about that accomplishment without also talking about Barbara Giddings. It was a team effort between the two of them. Barbara Giddings was one of the founders of the Daughters of Belitis, a, a lesbian organization, one of the founders of the New York chapter who teamed up with Frank Kameny to fight the American Psychiatric Association for the same reason that gay is good was so important as a phrase. They were fighting really the psychiatric community because the psychiatric principle at the time was that if you were gay, you suffered from a mental disorder. In fact, they codified that notion in the DSM, their, their handbook of mental disorders. And so beginning really in, in 1971, Frank Hamney and Barbara Giddings began a uh, concerted effort to change the, the definition of homosexuality and remove it from the handbook of mental disorders, the DSM. And they were successful within a matter of just a few years. The homosexuality was removed from the DSM in 1973. So it's incredible to see how rapidly they were able to affect societal change by simply creating coalitions and making logical arguments. I know that is cause for celebration, but it strikes me so sad that that's less than 50 years ago that you had educated people in advanced medicine still having acknowledged or believed before that it was an illness. Mm-hmm. Right. Despite evidence, overwhelming evidence by people and researchers like Evelyn Hooker, who was studying that exact issue in the 1950s in Los Angeles, finding that there was absolutely no distinction between homosexuals and heterosexuals when it came to mental wellness. And so it, it really shows that no profession, uh, whether you're in the sciences uh, or elsewhere, is, is immune from prejudice. And I think now, especially as we're having a conversation on, on racial relations and also trans matters, uh, we're seeing that we need to continuously evaluate our uh, assumptions and what we may consider to be a given uh, or scientifically based and say, is that really the way things should be? Or maybe uh, there is no basis for excluding trans people from the military or any of these matters that we're now confronting today. Hmm. Kameny sent 25 publishers a proposal for a book to be titled The Federal Government Versus the Homosexual American Citizen. Eric, the subtitle of your book is The Homosexual Versus the United States of America. Some symmetry there. I'm so glad you caught it. <laughs> I think you're the first to have actually caught 
where the, the subtitle came from. So thank you for, for actually reading it. <laughs> oh, I am so glad that I wasn't overthinking it. Um, mm -hmm. Would you talk about the title of your book, The Deviant's War, because there's irony there, too. <laughs> exactly. And one of the words that the psychiatric community devised to refer not just to the homosexual, but to anyone who deviated from sexual norms, now we would refer to that umbrella term as, as queer, but back then, they didn't have queer. They didn't have LGBTQ plus to refer to this community of people who deviated from, from society. And one of the words that the government had uh, and psychiatrists used was deviant. So it was a very kind of effective, convenient, but also cheeky <laughs> title that I was able to use because, of course, the cover of the book is modeled after the 1950 Senate report that really legitimized the gay purges uh, for the next 25 years. Uh, and because we also get the perspective of the government, whether it's the FBI uh, or the federal bureaucracy, I wanted to give that sense that it wasn't just rainbow flags in the Supreme Court, that this was an overarching narrative of America and the experience of those who fought back, whether it was Frank Hameney or Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, but also recognize how the government viewed the other, viewed sexual deviance as a threat to America as a whole. So depending on <laughs> what your views are when, when you pick up the book, it takes a little while to figure out, oh, who... Who is this book really about? And uh, that was an experience I wanted people to have when they first learned of the title. Mm. There was some closure and joy in the end. Please talk about Franklin Kameny and President Obama. Well, Frank Kameny continued his life of activism after the 1960s, even though the book ends in 1971 with the clips of the Mattachine Society of Washington, the group he founded. And he lived to quite an old age. Uh, he passed away in 2011 during the Obama administration. And one of the most remarkable parts of the story, I think, in his final years especially, is the Obama administration recognized what the government what the administration had done to Frank Kameny and the tragedy of exiling a genius, someone who could have been the architect of the American Manned Space Program from the government. And the head of the successor to the Civil Service Commission, the, the entity responsible for purging, Frank Kameny was actually an openly gay man. Uh, he was one of the first cabinet level positions ever to be filled by a gay man. And he uh, in 2009, his name was John Barry, invited Frank Kameny to the White House for a official apology to say, I'm sorry uh, for what the government did to you. And Frank Kameny simply stood up and said, apology accepted, and was there in the Oval Office as President Obama expanded uh, health benefits for LGBTQ plus employees. And he passed away just a year later. There's a beautiful photo of that moment at the end of the book. Would you please read the last line on page 383 through page 384? 
At the age of 86, Kamney remained proudest of just one thing, his formulation of the simple, logical assertion, once unfathomable, that homosexuality was morally good. Here you are, a national hero on a small scale, he had told Clifford Norton, the victorious yet closeted former NASA employee in 1969. You have fought the very government of the United States itself and won. If I were you just now, impoverishment and all, he continued, I'd be holding up my head in pride and looking anyone straight in the eye and saying, I'm a homosexual and so what? Accept me on my terms or you don't get me and you'll lose more than I will. And that includes your family. The closet is getting very stuffy. Come out. The fresh air and the sunshine are invigorating. Camney died in his sleep on October 11th, 2011, a sensible day to die, since it was National Coming Out Day. Gay is good. It is. And that is that. Dr. Eric Cervini, his new book is The Deviant's War, The Homosexual Versus the United States of America. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., our guest will be Chris Moses of the Alliance Theater. They're performing free outdoor family concerts of beautiful black bird in neighborhoods around Atlanta. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producer is Summer Evans, and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would just love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.